Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Friday, February the 16th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios uh, in downtown Detroit. I uh, would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches uh, on uh, the statement made by the Lebanese resistance leader, uh, Nasrallah, on the current state of clashes with the Israeli occupation forces. Palestine is continuing to face a worsening war situation. We'll have details on that as well. The humanitarian crisis in the Republic of Sudan is being addressed uh, in an international conference coming up in France. And figures are now available for the economic growth of African Union member states during the previous year. In the second and third hours, we listened to a panel discussion on the situation in Palestine from Electronic uh, Intifada, one of the primary sources on uh, the situation that is taking place uh, in the Gaza Strip and through other areas of uh, the occupied uh, Palestinian territories. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take a break uh, with our musical interlude. Uh, We're going to listen to Um Kaltoum and her orchestra. Let's listen in. سيداتي وسادتي حفلة الليلة ظهرت على المسرح الآن كوكب الشرق أم كلثوم لتغني أغنية من أروع أغنياتها العاطفية
The spokesperson of the Al-Qasim Brigades, Abu Obeda, affirmed on Friday uh, that the Al-Aqsa flood operation marked the beginning of the end of the longest occupation in modern history and will be turning a turning point in our nation's history. In a voice recording, Abu Obeda praised the Al-Aqsa flood operation, uh, saying it did change and will change the face of the region and will not subside as it is crystallizing by the day to remove injustice and aggression from Al-Aqsa. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, France will hold a ministerial meeting in mid-April to help Sudan and neighboring countries cope with the fallout of a civil war that has seen millions displaced and prompted And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire. And uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
welcome back. And that was the Jimi Hendrix Experience, uh, doing the track entitled Burning the Midnight Lamp uh, at the BBC Studios in 1967. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, this special edition of our program. I am your host, Abayomi Azikwe. Right now, we want to move into an update on the situation in Palestine uh, from one of the primary sources on the situation uh, in West Asia, and that is Electronic Intifada. Uh, let's listen in. Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, February 14th. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Winstanley, Ali Abunima, John Elmer, and Tamara, Tamara Nassar. It's day 131 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. We have another packed show for you today, but first, some of the news that we've been covering at the Electronic Intifada. Rafah, located in southern Gaza along the border with Egypt, endured some of the deadliest hours of Israel's military offensive now in its fifth month early on Monday morning. Our colleague Maureen Claire Murphy reports that Israel killed at least 68 Palestinians, including 19 children and 13 women, during some two hours of bombing, according to Al-Haq, Al-Mizan, and the Palestinian Center for Human Rights. The following is from Maureen's report. More than 28,000 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed since October 7th, with thousands more missing under the rubble. An untold number of Palestinians have died from hunger and disease in a secondary wave of mortality resulting from Israel's military offensive and siege. The vast majority of of Gaza's population of 2.3 million people have been displaced, many of them repeatedly, and most are now sheltering in Rafah in inhumane conditions. Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, has repeatedly threatened to expand the military offensive in Rafah in recent days, raising international alarm over the unprecedented bloodshed and mass expulsion that would all but surely entail. Israeli warplanes targeted at least 15 residential buildings, two mosques, agricultural lands and areas close to the Egyptian-Palestinian border, according to the rights groups. Helicopters and gunboats were also involved in the attacks. Ninety Palestinians, including 34 children, 18 women, and a journalist, were killed in Israeli airstrikes on Rafah in the first 10 days of February, the rights groups said. Sinai for Human Rights, an organization based in Egypt, said that on early Monday, Israel bombed areas along the Gaza-Egypt border fence, which Cairo has reinforced due to fears of a mass expulsion of Palestinians from Gaza. The three Palestinian human rights groups said that the people amassed on Gaza's border with Egypt had fled to the area, quote, at the command of the Israeli military on the instruction that Rafah was a designated safe zone. The groups added that the intensified targeting of Rafah comes as the Israeli military continues to empty out Gaza City and forcibly displace its residents southward toward Deir Abalah and Khan Yunus. 
forcing Palestinians south to Rafah and then announcing the displacement of people in that area, quote, whether internally into smaller pockets of Gaza or into Egypt with no basic necessities for survival is further evidence of Israel's genocidal intent, according to the human rights groups. An unnamed senior Israeli military official told Axios that it had pounded Rafah early Monday as a diversion while its forces freed two Israeli Argentine men held in Gaza after being captured during Hamas's October 7th raid. Of the more than 240 Israelis and foreign nationals who were captured on October 7th, around 130 remain in Gaza after around 100 were freed in a prisoner exchange during a week-long truce in late November. On Sunday, the Qassam Brigades, the armed wing of Hamas, announced that two captives were killed and eight were seriously injured in Israeli strikes during the preceding days. The Israeli military said early last week that 31 of the remaining captives in Gaza had been declared dead and their families notified. That was from Maureen Claire Murphy's latest report, Removal of Palestinians in Rafah, a Genocidal Act, on electronicintifada.net. On Tuesday, Israeli snipers killed at least seven Palestinians and injured 14 medics and displaced persons inside the courtyard of the Nasser Medical Complex in Khan Yunus in southern Gaza. According to the Palestinian Health Ministry's spokesperson, occupation forces demolished the northern gate of the hospital complex while soldiers ordered patients and staff inside the hospital to evacuate. In a particularly dystopian scene, an Israeli quadcopter drone was filmed hovering above displaced people as Israeli forces ordered those in and around the complex to leave. The health ministry said that schools surrounding Nasser Medical Complex were targeted and caught fire, and fire spread to a nearby medical equipment warehouse. Sewage water flooded the emergency department inside the hospital, and hospital administrators said they were not able to transfer any dead bodies to the mortuary due to the extreme danger, according to the health ministry. A doctor at Nasser Hospital told the Electronic Intifada on Tuesday that, quote, the Nasser Medical Complex was besieged from all sides and military mechanisms destroyed the northern gate of the complex. Snipers target anyone moving inside the complex and there are martyrs lying on the ground and no one can reach them. The fourth floor of the surgical operations department is targeted by snipers. All medical staff are trapped with patients inside. All medical warehouses were burned. Say to the world what happened here. End quote. Another doctor, Khaled Alser, sent me this voice message later in the day yesterday. Uh, last two hours, uh, I have operated on two patients. Uh, both of them are civilians uh, considered as a refugee inside the hospital who tried to go outside the hospital according to uh, uh, Israeli army instructions. Unfortunately, they, they have been shot, multiple injuries, multiple bullets inside their bodies. That was Dr. Khaled Al-Ser, who sent me a voice message yesterday from Al-Nasser Hospital.
Maureen Claire Murphy reports that Ahmad al-Mugrabi, the head of the Burns Department, said that Israeli troops sent a Palestinian detainee wearing personal protective equipment and his hands cuffed into Nasser Medical Complex to deliver the military's order to evacuate on Tuesday. When he returned to the troops as they had ordered, they executed the young man. This morning, Maureen reports that thousands of people evacuated the facility under Israeli order. The Palestinian health ministry in Gaza said that, quote, thousands of displaced people, the families of medical staff and patients who cannot move, were forcibly evacuated. Quote, they are threatened with extreme danger, according to Ashraf al-Kedra, the ministry's spokesperson. Videos show people streaming out of the hospital and evacuees masked at a checkpoint. For more, read Maureen Claire Murphy's latest report, Israel Lays Siege to Gaza Hospital as Rafah Stares Death in the Face on electronicintifada.net. On February 9th, a video went viral showing physician Amira al-Asuli courageously rescuing an injured patient who was stranded near Nasser Hospital. Israeli snipers and armed quadcopters shot at anybody who moved in the area. Al-Asuli told Al Jazeera afterwards that, quote, our message to the world is this. Since graduation, we swore the doctor's oath and to take on the duty to help any human in need of medical help. I know that for quite some time they were trying to rescue that man, but they were afraid because of a quadcopter. The snipers were directly shooting at him and at us directly. Meanwhile, Israel is starving Gaza. According to the BBC, children, quote, are going without food for days as aid convoys are increasingly denied permits to enter. The United Nations estimates that nearly one in every 10 Palestinian children in Gaza under five years old are now acutely malnourished. A recent report by the Integrated Food Security Phase Classification, or IPC, says that between December 8th and February 7th, the entire population of the Gaza Strip, approximately 2.3 million people, has been classified as in crisis or worse. Quote, this is the highest share of people facing high levels of acute food insecurity that the IPC initiative has ever classified for any given area or country, the IPC states. Moreover, the IPC says that about half of the population are in a food emergency and, quote, at least one in four households or more than half a million people face catastrophic conditions characterized by an extreme lack of food, starvation and exhaustion of coping capacities. Citing financial restrictions against UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, the Israeli government is holding up more than 1,000 shipping containers of vital food items at the Ashdod port, just 20 miles north of the Gaza boundary. The shipments, which contain rice, flour, chickpeas, sugar, and cooking oil, are enough to feed more than 1 million people for one month. Bezalel Smotrich, Israel's finance minister, has admitted that he blocked the shipments in coordination with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Axios reported on Tuesday that Smotrich, quote, blocked the transfer of the flour after he was notified that it was destined for UNRWA, the primary aid group in Gaza. Quote, he ordered the Israeli Customs Service not to release the shipment as long as UNRWA is the recipient, Axios added. Last week, Israeli naval forces attacked a food aid convoy that was reportedly heading to northern Gaza. 
Philippe Lazzarini, the head of UNRWA, stated last week that half of the agency's humanitarian aid mission requests to areas in northern Gaza were, den- were denied since the beginning of the year. The UN, he said, has identified deep pockets of starvation and hunger in northern Gaza where people are believed to be on the verge of famine. At least 300,000 people living in the area depend on our assistance for their survival. For much more, read my report, Israel Engineers Deep Pockets of Starvation Across Gaza on electronicintifada.net. And finally, finding clean air in Gaza has become nearly impossible, writes Khalud Rabah Suleiman and Salma Yassin reporting from Gaza. Quote, parents are worried that toxic substances emitted by Israel's weapons are causing an increase in respiratory complaints among children, they write. Quote, as well as the pollution caused by Israel's weapons, the air in Gaza has been fouled by the widespread burning of wood and other material. With electricity and fuel scarce, people have had no choice than to light fires so that they can have a little warmth and cook the small amount of food still available. Read more from Khalud Rabah Suleiman and Salma Yassin's article, A Toxic War, on electronicintifada.net. And those are just some of the many stories we've published on the Electronic Intifada over the last few days. Head over to electronicintifada.net for much more. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Ali Abunima and Asa Wynn-Stanley. Asa, tell us about our first guest. Well, welcome everybody. We're joined today by David Miller, a writer and broadcaster. David Miller is one of the world's leading academic experts in Islamophobia, propaganda, and the pro-Israel lobby. In October 2021, after a decade-long smear campaign against him by that same lobby, he was fired from his job as a professor of sociology by the University of Bristol. But now, more than three years on, an employment tribunal in Britain has ruled that his sacking was unlawful and violated his protected philosophical beliefs under British equality legislation, namely his opposition to Zionism, the Israeli state's racist foundational ideology. David, welcome back to the EI podcast, first time on the live stream. Thank you very much, Issa. Good to see you all. Yeah, great to be uh Great to be having another conversation with you. Well, first of all, congratulations on this uh, hard-fought legal victory. And we've got a short video clip here, which I would like to play. Thank you, Tamara. That was uh, a recent speaking event that you uh, <laughs> spoke at in Bristol uh, at the Markham X Centre. Is that right? On Sunday, just there. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So it was great to see that. Just um, people celebrated your legal win, and, and you know, this has been a hard-fought victory. Uh, you know, and it's taken a lot of fortitude really to get here. Um, but tell us about the implications of this uh, of this victory and how it, if it does, set a legal precedent for others. Well, it's a it's a tremendous victory for me personally. So I, it, the court determined that I was wrongly 
dismissed that the university hadn't properly investigated the claims against me, hadn't investigated or taken on board the evidence that I supplied, they hadn't properly evaluated that evidence and uh, th therefore that I was wrongly dismissed. But the, the more significant part of the, the win is that uh, the court determined that the reason I was sacked was not because I had upset some students, which is what the university said, but because of my anti-Zionist views, the, the university's witnesses in the end conceded that point uh, in cross-examination. If, if I hadn't been an anti-Zionist, then the rest of the comments that I made, they said, wouldn't have, let, uh, sort of wouldn't have ended in me being sacked. So it was clear that they themselves conceded that point, and that's what led to the court uh, issuing the judgment that I had been sacked because of my anti-Zionist views, and, and this is the most important point, that anti-Zionist views were, to use the language from the Equality Act 2010, worthy of respect in a democratic society. And that's the legal test for whether uh, views should be protected in law. So it's now the case that you cannot discriminate against someone, you can't sack someone or discipline someone for having anti-Zionist views, no matter how horrific you might or Zionists might think those views are. And that, of course, is a tremendous legal precedent for, for anyone in any kind of job in the UK. But also, it drives a, a coach and horses all the way through the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's working definition of anti-Semitism, which, of course, is the Zionist entity's main uh, weapon of choice for, for beating the, uh, and bashing the Palestine Solidarity Movement. Because, of course, if you recall, as I'm sure you do, Asa, um, there's one of the examples in there in the IHRA which says that it's uh, potentially anti-Semitic to say that Israel is a racist endeavour. Now we can all say, yes, Israel is a racist endeavour, always was, always will be, uh, and no one can say that's racist. The courts have declared that that is not mm. a racist statement, as we all knew, but nevertheless, this is not something which the Zionist movement wants to hear, and that's why they're a little bit cross about it. Yeah, I saw the, the the Jewish Chronicles front page this last weekend. They were uh, not very happy about it, to say the least. The Jewish Chronicle being uh, an extremely uh, pro-Israel newspaper in Britain, weekly newspaper, right-wing newspaper. David, uh, if I, I can add my congratulations to you. Uh, you, uh, I mean, just to recall... You, before you were fired, which I think was in October of 2021, so three years ago, or is that two years ago, more than two years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, time is doing strange things with our minds these days. Uh, prior to that, there had been a whole uh, big smear campaign against you. Asa mentioned it had been going on for years, but it was particularly intense at that time and it involved the national and international media, and it was really driven by Israel lobby groups and particular individuals who ginned up this whole, if I may say, fake story that you were making Jewish students on campus feel unsafe uh, with whatever comments they said you made or, or, or statements you made. And as we reported in November of 2021, the university actually, and this is Bristol University, your employer, actually commissioned two independent investigations, and both of them concluded that the charges of anti-Semitism 
against you were completely unfounded. But despite that, they went on and fired you based on completely bogus reasons. Uh, notably, they, they didn't claim that they fired you for anti-Semitism, but as you said, the tribunal found that the, the real reason was your anti-Zionist views. Now, that's just a, a way to, to get to, to the question I want to put to you. For the past few years, you've insisted, and we've all insisted, that because Zionism is a political ideology, it's not a religion, it's not a personal identity, it's not an ethnicity, it is a political ideology that holds that Palestinians can and must be forcibly removed from their homeland so that Jewish settlers from all over the world can take their place. So it's optional. You know, your ethnicity, your race is not optional. But supporting this racist ideology is optional, and therefore we have a right to criticize it. But so there's been this effort by putting these students up to say, oh, David Miller hurt my feelings, to turn Zionism into a sort of identity like religion or like race so that if you offend a Zionist, you're discriminating against them. What does this ruling do to that campaign on British and American campuses to try to convince people that Zionism is a, a, an identity that we have to respect and protect? Well, it, it, it facially undermines it. I mean, at the level of, of employment law in the UK, uh, you can now no longer say, you know, this, this person's been racist against me because he's criticized Israel. It's no longer going to be available as a, as a kind of a strategy of choice which the Zionists can use. It's not going to stop them necessarily, but it's, it's going to be clear that, that there's a distinction to be made between anti-Zionism, obviously, and, and anti-Semitism or racism. But I think also it's going to have a, a knock-on effect more widely. I mean, the universities are going to have to decide uh, what they do now, because they, the, the UK courts have declared that uh, effectively the IHRA uh, is not uh, on all fours with, with the law, and that's going to be very difficult. That's going to have to work its way through, and that working its way through will have implications not just at the national level in the UK, but internationally as well in the US and indeed in, in uh, everywhere else that the IHRA has been used as a weapon. So I, I'm, I'm very optimistic that this is the beginning of the end of the IHRA, actually, and of course there's been some pushback against it before. Some universities have to reject it. But this really is a declaration in a court which can't really be uh, um, countermanded. I mean, it's not really available to be countermanded. It's clear that, that anti-Zionism is a protected belief and is separate from anti-Semitism. I can't see any way in which the, the courts can declare that's not the case. Uh, there's never been an example of protected beliefs being overturned uh, like that in the court. So uh, that, that's a, a really positive uh, outcome and uh, it's a, this is, as people have been saying, this is a victory for for all of us, and it's a, it's something which will then be there to protect all of us uh, who are faced with incessant lies that uh, the Zionists like to spout. And just a reminder for our viewers and listeners, the IHRA's, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of anti-Jewish bigotry, and in its um, you know in in its explanation of what is anti-Semitism. Uh, I believe seven out of the 11 examples that they give are criticisms of, of Israel and its state policies. Um, so it is, it is really 
a weapon to silence critics of Israeli policy and of the Zionist political ideology. And, yeah, and, and, the, yeah, and yeah. The, the definition has its roots with the Mossad. I mean, this That's is what yeah. people yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, it was a Mossad-funded so-called research at the uh, uh, in Israel that led to the IHRA definition. We, we actually have an article about that from uh, a few months ago at the Electronic Intifada. But I also say the IHRA, this so-called International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which has this very somber and serious sounding name is just an Israel lobby group yeah. and it's made up it's not international yeah it's, yeah it's members are Israel the government of Israel and Israel's closest friends in the world so the right. United States and the EU and there's been this big this so-called definition to formalize it and adopt it in universities across the UK across the United States and in the rest of the uh, European and settler colonial world. And so this, this, as David said, is really a setback to that effort. Yeah, um, well, uh, another, next question for you, uh, David, just to put this to you. Um, what are the responses I've seen from the Zionists uh, to your legal victory? I mean, apart from general outrage, I mean, and I believe this was in the, the Jewish Chronicle, was um I, I i think it was uh john mann who you know is this uh he's a pro israel campaigner let's just put it like that for now um he his response was well this is outrageous this should be overturned but also he was trying to argue that it could go both ways and he said that well if uh, anti-zionism is a protected characteristic then therefore so is so is zionism so is that the case in law, and uh, what would your response be to those kind of uh, arguments? Uh, it's not the case in law just yet. Um, it could be established in law, um, and this is what, for example, the, the uh, silver lining, as the UK lawyers for Israel put it, is that they think that they can now establish Zionism as a protected belief. That remains to be seen, uh, and of course it would depend very on the, the case that they brought and what kind of Zionism they wanted to define and how the court thought about it. So that, that there are questions about that. Uh, it's not clear to me much how it uh, helps them much since Zionism is already protected <laughs> throughout <laughs> our society because of the way in which our societies yeah. operate. But I think there's another question about, about this, which is that John Mann uh, uh, in the, um, uh, it was in the Jewish Chronicle, I think at the, at the weekend, as you were saying, is uh, um, talking about the how this decision needed to be reversed, uh, and that Parliament should be looking at this. So uh, essentially, John Mann is saying that that he disagrees with the decision of the courts so much that he thinks that we should abolish the separation of powers uh, and effectively introduce fascism just in order to <laughs> reverse the decision. In my case, now of course that's a a ludicrous way of seeing things, but it's, it's not um, unrealistic that the government will start to do stuff in this area. Already we've had Kemi Babnoch, uh, one of the, the government ministers, talking about this in a, a way which is, which is fairly ludicrous. But let's remind ourselves that it wasn't just, uh, as one of you said, uh, Israel lobby groups which were uh, attacking me, and there were a laundry list of Israel lobby groups which most people uh, couldn't name if they were asked because there were so many of them but there was also people from the from from parliament more than 100 members of the house of lords 
And the House of Commons wrote a letter asking for me to be sacked. And there were debates in Parliament, there were uh, questions in the House, uh, etc. I was denounced as being, uh, I think, uh, Jacob Rees Mogg uh, denounced me as being peculiarly wicked uh, for the comments that, that I had made. So there was a huge campaign against me, which of course was whipped up by the, by the lobby and by the Zionist movement. Uh, and, and of course, they will try and continue with this, as they're trying to continue with the, uh, introducing a, a, a bill against CDS. Uh, and as, of course, they're trying to outlaw the, the waving of the Palestinian flag or the use of the slogan from the river to the sea. And we just saw yesterday in, in the UK, um, which I, I guess you will have seen in the news, that these three young women, one of whom is Palestinian from Gaza, convicted of a, a crime of terrorism for having on their backs during a demonstration uh, in October and November last year, the image of a parachute. And there's obviously an attempt to clamp down and to make it impossible to, to vocalize pro-Palestinian sentiment. But at the same time, of course, as, as all of us know, the whole world sees what's happening in Gaza. The whole world sees the endless procession of babies and children dragged from rubble and, and everyone sees that uh, that uh, Zionism is a genocidal ideology and so that that attempt to to, to crack down is is foundering on the fact that the whole world supports Palestine with the exception of course of the countries in the west and uh, meaning their leaders but the whole of public opinion supports Palestine and that's a really difficult thing for them to manage just to give one example of that you know let's remember that uh, Elon Musk who is now uh, descending into the arms of the Zionists at a, a, a rate of knots. Remember, he said when he came back from from seeing the uh, from Kibbutz Beeri, uh, seeing the uh, the, the uh, stuff that the Israelis showed him. He said, "From the rivers to the sea is genocidal, and we will not have it on the platform." Well, has anybody been stopped from being on X as a result of using that? No, of course not, because they can't, because the whole world is using the slogan, because the whole world supports Palestine. So. It's a real dilemma for them in that they're trying to clamp down, but it's not working. Yeah, they're sort of almost shutting down. We're starting to see this process of Western society shutting down Western governments, shutting down their own uh, systems, that, you know, potentially democratic systems, but internal systems, purely to defend Israel and Zionism. And this is, these yeah. are contradictions that are being really heightened across the world during this genocide. David, the attack on you and your defense uh, is, a very, is, is, we hope, a very significant turning point for free speech and academic freedom and a real blow against the thuggery of the Israel lobby, a lobby you've done so much to expose in your, both your academic and journalistic work. But as we know, you are not alone in being under attack for your academic work. And all over the UK, Europe, um, particularly Germany, in the United States, in Canada, we hear story after story of young academics, and not, not always young academics, uh, sometimes quite established academics, and particularly Palestinian academics, uh, come under attack just for being Palestinian or for speaking out uh, in support of Palestinian rights or even for uh, very legitimate academic research. We've seen uh, now almost 10 years ago, Stephen Salaita was subjected to 
a similar smear campaign and he was fired by the University of Illinois. And he's not alone either. So my question for you is, as an academic and someone who's been through this, what advice do you have for your fellow academics uh, who may face this kind of smear campaign? How, 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 do you, how, how do we stand up to it? Well, I think the key thing, and I don't think this applies just to academics, but it does apply to academics too. The key thing is to adopt a strategy of, uh, of attack, of not apologizing. Of not, I mean, the, the key difference between what I did and what many of the people in the Labour Party did uh, uh, in the UK when Jeremy Corbyn was in charge, the strategy then was to apologize. Say, I'm terribly sorry, I've hurt your feelings, I didn't mean it. Maybe we can have a chat, maybe we can make things right. But that is, that's a losing strategy, and that's what lost Jeremy Corbyn the leadership of the Labour Party. Of course, Asa shows in his fantastic book on the topic. My strategy was to say, we do, we do not compromise with the Zionists because we cannot. This is a racist ideology, and it simply has to be defeated. And that is, seems to me, to, it has to be the first uh, um, point of any response to these kinds of criticisms. The second uh, point, therefore, uh, if you're going to, to do that, is to, is to say you have to get support. Uh, and I've had... Uh, tremendous legal support in court, and uh, those of you who followed what, what happened in court, uh, and the, the amazing theatre of the cross-examination will, will already know that. But what I would say is that, you, that there, are, there are ways and means to support yourself. Make sure you get legal advice. Uh, quite often, comrades don't think to get proper legal advice, and they, they lay themselves open. I'm not sure those three women, those poor women, who, two of whom handed themselves in, who were found guilty just yesterday of terrorism charges. I'm not sure they had the most uh, politically adept counsel. I wouldn't want to, to you know, say anything bad about their lawyers, but you have to have decent lawyers to understand the politics. Uh, and you also have to have support. Now, of course, there are organizations that can support you in the US, Palestine Legal, and uh, in Europe with the European Legal Center. In the UK, I, I've been supported by an organization called the Left Legal Fighting Fund, which was created by Chris Williamson, uh, the former MP, when he won a case against the Labour Party, and he put all the money, the damages, into starting that organisation. I'm the director of the company as well. And we, so we've used that to try and help and defend individuals. People who've got uh, issues like those women who've been convicted yesterday, uh, problems with the police uh, or problems at their work, they can come to the Left Legal Fighting Fund. It's fightingfund.org, and we may be able to help you and, and defend you. In my case, my, my legal fees all the way through this process amount to over £100,000. I mean, that really is a, a staggering sum of money. I could never have, uh, um, obviously, <laughs> having been put out of work, never have paid that. And, and we managed to pay. We haven't paid all of it yet. We've got £30,000 roughly outstanding, but we've paid a huge amount of it. And I've been kind of overwhelmed and inundated with support with that in the last 14 days. We've had 500 small donations from people which have really pushed up the total of, of money that we've got. So I would say get help. There are organizations that can help you. We can run crowdfunders. We run them in secure processes where, where the science can't cancel them. And all of that, that knowledge and skill of how to do that now exists in, in, in the EU, in the UK, and in the US. And I would really recommend that people do have proper legal and political support. And that's what I would say. Yeah, sound advice. Well, a final question. Um, it's kind of a big question, but... Maybe you could talk about it a little bit. The last time you came on the EI podcast, I think, was um, shortly after your firing in 2021. And uh, I recommend this 
to go back and uh, watch this to all our listeners and viewers. Um, if you haven't seen it or heard it already, I think it was a really insightful conversation. Um, there's a full transcript actually on that page as well. Um, and in that conversation, you emphasized the necessity of dismantling the ideology of Zionism. And you said, quote, the same way as we would talk about dismantling racism, racism is not just a set of ideas, it has material forms and practices. If you want to dismantle and eradicate Zionism, you have to dismantle the apparatus which puts it in place. Um, could you talk about the material role that you think we've seen the Zionist movement in Britain play in the genocide in Gaza that we've seen since the 7th of October in regards to that? I mean, I suppose one maybe very small example is uh, <laughs> is Sabrina Miller, the woman who really uh, kicked off your... The witch hunt against you, really, at Bristol University. She was kind of... Uh, she was kind of the cat's paw for the Israel lobby in a way. Um, and, you know, she wasn't your, <laughs> she wasn't even your student, um, but uh, she really, there was, there was lots of others on, there was lots of others who campaigned against you, but um, she was one of the more vocal ones. Um, and today, I mean, that really kicked off her career. And today she has a successful career writing for the right wing media and was even astonishingly, give, astonishingly given the job of reporting on your legal victory for the Daily Mail, um, <laughs> and she didn't disclose any of this. There's no disclosure of the role she played posing as, uh, and I, I want to come back to this, posing as a poor, vulnerable, uh, you know, young woman who was so deeply hurt by, uh, you know, all the awful things that David Miller supposedly said. And, and I just think it's so important to highlight that this is the strategy of putting students or alleged students, because she wasn't, she may have been a student at Bristol, but she wasn't your student, David, um, putting young people forward on campuses and saying, oh, look, look how their feelings are being hurt by all these awful things you're saying about Israel. But as Asa says, she went on to work for one of the most racist, Islamophobic, right-wing uh, media outlets on the planet, the Daily Mail, uh, and, you know, is, has been utterly ruthless. There is nothing emotionally vulnerable about her. She is a ruthless agent of anti-Palestinian propaganda. Maybe you won't say, yeah. maybe, I don't know, yeah, but th that, that's my view. I speak for myself. <laughs> Oh, yeah, look, I mean, that's a very big question, as you said, and really we need uh, another whole episode of a podcast in order to, to deal with this properly. But let, me, let me deal with it in, in summary terms. I'll maybe say, give a structural understanding and then give an example. So it seems to me that, that when um, Mir Scheimer and Malt wrote their famous book, The Israel Lobby, in whenever it was, 2005 or six or whatever it was, what they think of as the Israel lobby, and actually what most people think of as the Israel lobby, are the Israel lobby groups who are engaged in trying to influence policy. So in, in the US, APAC, uh, in the UK, BICOM or the Conservative Friends of Israel or the Labour Friends of Israel, uh, etc. Now, of course, they are the Israel lobby, and there's many more groups uh, that are also part of that. In Misha and Walt's book, they talk about the, uh, the neocon and uh, Zionist think tanks, the FDD, the WNEP, etc., etc. Jinsa, there's another one. 
And of course, you can think of the same thing here, the policy exchange, the image access society. That's the Israel lobby. But then there's the Zionist movement, which is a much, much broader thing, uh, including huge numbers of organizations in, in, uh, in, in the US, for example, if you look at the lobbying disclosure, disclosure um, uh, register, you see that APAC spent last year, the year before, 2.7 million pounds, dollars, sorry. Uh, and people say, you know, the Zionists say, oh, shows that the Israel lobby is not very important. The National Association of Realtors spent way more. But then if you look at the, the data compiled for that book, Big Israel, uh, which is uh, all held on the, the israellobby.org archive, they've done a compilation, which is not even the full, uh, full magnitude of the Zionist lobby. And it shows that in 2020, uh, the uh, budget of the Israel lobby uh, was 6.3 billion for, for that one year. So that's a little bit more than $3 million. But the other thing to say about that is that that's not the full extent of the influence of Zionism in our societies. Now, there's two other ways of looking at this, it seems to be. One is the, the, the way in which Zionists are lodged throughout the power structure of the society, not just in, in lobby groups, but in, in, in Whitehall, Westminster, or, or in the State Department, or in the Department of Defense in the US. Uh, and and, which, and um, they're lodged at a level which is far in excess of, for example, the the level of the pop, in the population of Jews in the US, which is around three percent, or in the UK, which is around 0.5 percent. That's another key way in which Zionism has an influence. It's the, it's the the embeddedness of Zionism at the top levels in journalism, in politics, in in policy making. And there's a fourth way in which the Zionists have an influence, which is in, is through corporations. Uh, and uh, at the meeting I was at on Sunday, uh, uh, the the rapper Loki was there talking about his research, uh, especially on companies like Oracle and a whole slew of, of, uh, of Israeli um, tech companies, most of which have got senior people from Unit 8200, which of course is the signals intelligence unit of the Israeli military. And that's another way in which the, 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 the Israeli state is able to penetrate uh, um, the, the politics of the UK or the US. The example he used at the end there was the question of Oracle, run by this guy called Larry Ellison, who lent a, a million, sorry, a billion dollars to Elon to, to uh, buy Twitter. And they have this massive billion dollar contract, more than, more than a billion dollar contract, to manage all the cloud services of the Ministry of Defense, the National Health Service, and the Foreign Office in this country. Now that's a real national security risk and threat, but it, it's a way in which the designers are able to penetrate the most secret parts of the British state. And now people don't understand really the full range of, of ways in which the designers are able to to uh, influence and uh, uh, infiltrate. And that's the structural question I was give you. Now, but let me give you one example of how this all works out in terms of the, the genocide. So I've been doing stuff recently on the show that I produce and uh, appear on called Palestine Declassified, uh, which has looked at, um, for example, the, the, uh, there's two um, charities, British charities, one called Beit Halachim, and the other one's called the UK Friends of the Association for the Wellbeing of Israel Soldiers, which is the UK wing of our organization, which in the States is called Friends of the IDF. Now they send millions of pounds uh, every year to the IDF to, to, for mobile synagogues and gyms and new swimming pools. And they have a festival with 30,000 IDF recruits at it every year uh, you know, to, to welcome, it's a music festival, to welcome you know, recruits, including those lone soldiers who come from the US or South Africa or the UK or whatever, to join the genocidal forces. This is a, a, a massive subvention for the genocide. 
Uh, and so the, the, there are organizations here that are doing that, and they are regulated in the UK by charity law, which is supposed to show public benefit. And that if, there's, there, if there are harms which come from their conduct, the harms must not outweigh the benefits. So there's a real uh, uh, sense of, this, that of the importance of looking at the way in which Zionism operates in the UK and in the US and in other countries, because it's, it's, a, it's a key pillar of supporting the ongoing genocide, and we can take action against those organizations here. And I'll give you one example of how we could take action. The, the guy who runs Beit Halachim is a guy called Andrew Wilson from the famous philanthropic family, the Wilson family, uh, uh, known for generations for their philanthropic work and the funding of Wilson College Cambridge and Wilson College Oxford, but also uh, for multi-generations, they've been supplying money for the, the uh, ethnic cleansing in Palestine, and they, they continue to do it to very many organizations, including, uh, yes, the IDF, but also directly to settlements and to Jewish supremacist groups and all sorts of other things. So there's a real sense of the importance of understanding not just Zionism in occupied Palestine, but the way in which Zionism in this country uh, helps to, to uh, facilitate and promote uh, the genocide and helps to keep and insulate it from from criticism, and we, we should be taking action directly against that uh, in each country that we live in. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I mean, it's, as you said, it's a huge question, and um, we should have a whole podcast on it, um, and maybe we can get you back on soon to talk about some more of those things. We really appreciate your time, David. Thanks for joining us once again. Uh, you can follow David on X, formerly Twitter, at tracking underscore power, and watch his show, Palestine Declassified, on Press TV. It's a great show. I've been on it. Uh, have you got anything else to plug? No, no. <laughs> that, that's all for the show. I mean, where, I think the two things is to say, um, yeah, we have legal fees outstanding, so if, if people can, yeah. then, then any contribution is welcome at fightingfund.org. Great. All right. Thank you very much, David. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. And you are watching and listening to the Electronic Intifada live stream. Sinn Féin has long been vocal in its support for the Palestinian people, but during this genocide, Palestinian and Irish activists have expressed growing dismay at how the political party has dragged its feet. First, Sinn Féin resisted calls to expel the Israeli ambassador from Dublin, and now it is refusing to heed demands that the party leaders boycott St. Patrick's Day festivities with President Joe Biden. Farah Kotaini has been a leading Palestinian voice in Ireland, pressing Sinn Féin and other politicians to stay away from the White House next month. She was recently thrown out of a Sinn Féin meeting in Belfast after she interrupted a speech by the Palestinian Authority representative in Ireland and called for the party to heed the boycott calls. Farah is founder of Key 48, a voluntary collective calling for the immediate right of return of over 7.4 million Palestinian refugees. She joins us to talk about the debate in Ireland, and we're also joined by our very own colleague, David Cronin, one of whose recent articles is titled, Ireland Must Disown Genocide Joe. Dave and Farah, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada live stream. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much. Farah, uh, let's start with you. Talk about uh, the action that you took um, in, in protest of uh, Sinn Féin's uh, support of Genocide Joe, as, as we uh, um, come to know. I think we actually have the clip, so we ah, can maybe start great. by showing some yeah. of that. 
Sorry to interrupt you, Janan, and to interrupt you being a mouthpiece of the Palestinian Authority. They are a corrupt dictatorship who have not had an election since 2006. They intimidate... We're Palestinians! We're Palestinians! We're Palestinians! He's from Gaza! His family are from Gaza! Please listen to us! We've listened to you all night! Please... We're all from Palestine. We're all Palestinian. I'm Palestinian. He's got family in Gaza right now. Please listen to us. Boycott the White House. Boycott the White House. Do not wait for Pakistan. Boycott the White House. Boycott the White House! Boycott me! Boycott the White House! Have you been attacked in the night? Have you been attacked? I'm Palestinian! I have a shame on you! There will not be a free Palestine without a united Ireland! Free Palestine, united Ireland! Boycott the White House! Boycott the White House! Farah, uh, thank you for taking that stand. Uh, talk a little bit about why you did it and, um, and, and what has happened since. Um, so, so last Wednesday was was the day the event took place. Um, it was very, it wasn't very well advertised. It was kind of advertised on the down low, um, obviously to prevent people um, like me who um, are very uh, disappointed in Sinn Fein's um, complicity in this genocide by not taking um, a very clear stance on on condemning Israel. Um, so the the event itself wasn't very well advertised. Um, we we a few group like it was a group of us actually it was a group of Palestinians based in in Belfast in the north of Ireland. Um, we found out that not only was Sinn Fein holding a quote unquote solidarity rally um, in a luxury hotel um, in a room with chandeliers, um, that not only was Sinn Fein holding this solidarity rally, um, but also it was hosting um, a Palestinian Authority ambassador, the um, the PA ambassador to Ireland, um, and we felt very concerned. Um, that Sinn Féin was exploiting um, was exploiting that to essentially use um, Shilan to use the ambassador as a token Palestinian to justify them going to the White House. Um, so we mobilized and, and we disrupted um, the the end of the event. We wanted to see um, kind of what they were what the talking points were, and at several different points, um, different elected officials from uh, from especially Declan Kearney, elected MLA in the North, um, he had actually. Um, mentioned going to the White House, um, and the reason they're going to the White House was to call for a ceasefire. Um, so we kind of wanted to sit and listen um, to, to what they what they all had to say, and then um, we felt the need to to amplify our voices. Um, and we literally only spoke for about 10 seconds. We didn't really get to to speak, um, and then we were swiftly manhandled by security, thrown out. All of us were, were Palestinians. Um, and some of us were also Palestinians from Gaza. Uh, I was standing alongside someone who had lost their father um, just two weeks ago in Gaza, um, and we had bottles thrown at us by Sinn Féin supporters. Um, Mr. Walsh, who was sitting in the front, uh, former Sinn Féin um, or current Sinn Féin councillor, uh, shared a cell with Bobby Sands, was one of the first to stand up um, and to tell us to, to leave, um, tell us to have our own event. Um, he shared a cell with Bobby Sands. Um, it, it, it's quite um, it, was, it was quite an unbelievable experience, um, and we expected some form of apology from 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 Sinn Fein, but we haven't received any apology. Um, instead, the very next day after we were thrown out of the event, um, Mary Lou Macdonald and Michelle O'Neill went to go pay another P, PA ambassador a visit, Hassan Zonwa in London, um, for another photo op um, to kind of guarantee their their token Palestinians to justify them going to the White House.
And, and Mary Lou McDonald is the president of Sinn Féin and Michelle O'Neill is the, 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 her deputy who is also the newly uh, installed first minister in um, Northern Ireland. Farah, I also uh, on, on my social media have called for Sinn Féin leaders to stay away from the White House uh, at the uh, upcoming St. Patrick's Day celebration, which is a big annual bash when all the Irish politicians go to the White House. And um, at least one party, the SDLP, uh, their leader, Colm Eastwood, has said he would stay away and that he couldn't stomach going to the White House. But some of the reactions I've gotten from a few uh, people, uh, I've had a lot of support for my position, as have you. But I have had some criticism, and people have said, well, Sinn Féin is one of the strongest and most vocal supporters for the Palestinian people over the years. So aren't you being unfair to them by uh, making this demand when they've been uh, some of the, the most vocal critics of Israel over the year? I, I'm just curious how you respond to that. Um, I don't think it's asking too much at all. I think it's actually quite preposterous that in the time of a genocide, you would go to celebrate any holiday, let it be St. Patrick's, Christmas, or whatever holiday it may be. We saw in Bethlehem um, in the in the church of nativity, um, they, they were obviously not celebrating Christmas for obvious reasons. And I don't think it's a big demand um, to, to ask Sinn Féin to, to boycott um, St. Patrick's Day at the White House. Um, and also, uh, in addition to that as well, um, this is kind of one of the sole opportunities to really um, amplify kind of Irish dissent on this. Um, the annual celebrations of St. Patrick's Day would send a clearer message than physically being there and, and asking for a ceasefire in person. I want to bring uh, our colleague Dave in as well. Um, Dave, what can you say about the role of Sinn Féin and uh, you know, right now in, in terms of, of its, you know, what Farah was just saying about its uh, support of Genocide Joe, um, how can you assess the current kind of political uh, state of things right now um, in Ireland? Well, I think it's very depressing that somebody like Shiana Walsh, who Farah has just mentioned, the, the, the man who was, who was sitting in the front row was a Sinn Féin councillor, was the first person, as Farah has said, to stand up and say, I think his precise words were, go and have your own event. Shiana Walsh runs or has been involved in running a centre in Belfast dedicated to James Connolly, who was a revered figure in Irish history. James Connolly was a famous socialist, a famous internationalist. He took part in the 1916 and was executed for his role in the 1916 Easter Rising in Dublin. I can't imagine that James Connolly would have turned around to a Palestinian and say, go and have your own event. Mm-hmm. Sinn Féin's position, unfortunately, has weakened considerably. A few days ago, I did a little bit, bit of digging on the Sinn Féin website, I looked up back issues of On Fublacht, the weekly newspaper that Sinn Féin publishes. I found a, f- a fascinating article from 1998 in which Sinn Féin offered a devastating critique 
of the Oslo Accords, which were signed a few years earlier between Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization. The article on Afoblak complained that Palestinians were being told that they have to make do with quote-unquote occasional scraps. Why can't Sinn Féin boycott the White House? What would it lose from boycott, boycotting the White House? Sinn Féin has just achieved, just taken over the position of First Minister in the North of Ireland. If Michelle O'Neill, the Sinn Féin First Minister, did not go to the White House, refused to shake hands with Joe Biden on St. Patrick's Day, she would gain enormous credibility as somebody who is prepared to stand up for the Palestinian people, to stand up for Palestinian rights. Why is she not prepared to do that? Why is Mary, Mac Mary Lou MacDonald in Dublin, her, her, her colleague in Dublin, who's the leader of the largest party in Ireland, why is she not prepared to take a stand in support yeah. of Palestinians yeah. at a time when they are going through a genocide? David, uh, David, I, I, you know this, and but I want our viewers to know this, uh, and certainly as a Palestinian, uh, there is no country where, where I feel and we feel more visceral uh, and heartfelt support than in Ireland and the Irish people. And I've spent quite a lot of time in Ireland. It's been a few years, but I've I've had a chance to spend a lot of time in Ireland, both uh, in the north and the south. And I can speak to that uh, love and solidarity directly. And we certainly feel it online as well. And uh, I can say that um, that uh, we've heard a great deal from people in Ireland, north and south, who want Sinn Féin to listen to Farah and other Palestinians in Ireland and stay away from the White House. My question, uh, perhaps for both of you, is is this strong popular solidarity and sentiment with Palestine translating into policy from the Irish government? Does the Irish government stand out among, say, countries in Europe in terms of its policies? We have seen a bit more criticism from the Irish government Today, I believe the Irish government, along with the government of Spain, released a letter calling on uh, the European Union to review its, uh, its relationship with Israel in light of the, the crimes that are going on. But my question is, is Ireland doing enough? Could it be doing more? I, I don't know, perhaps maybe uh, Farah uh, would like to, to, to start, and I'd love to hear what you think, Dave. Um, no, I don't think the Irish government is is doing near enough what it could be doing, um, and especially in terms of um, okay, the beginning of the genocide from from October. Um, uh, Michael Martin actually did a visit. He visited um, he visited uh, settlements, um, did a whole propaganda um, photo shoot. Um, he he was essentially used as a propaganda tool um, that has that has fueled. Um, the, the ongoing slaughter of Palestinians in Gaza, um, and I I really feel strongly that um, 
not only could the Irish government be doing more, but all kind of parties along the Irish political uh, spectrum could be doing a lot more. Dave, do you want to jump in? Sure. Yeah. Maybe just explain very, very, very briefly for, for people who people who who are not for, not from Ireland. Um, Sinn Fein is the largest party in Ireland at the moment. It's the lead government party in the north. However, it's in, in opposition in the south of, of of Ireland. Ireland, of course, is a, a country that was partitioned by Britain just over a century ago. In the, the Dublin government, it, it, I, I won't go into too much detail about this, but it's composed of two right-wing parties called Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, and the Green Party, which, are, which has become increasingly right-wing in recent years. Just today, the Irish Taoiseach, the Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, sent a joint letter to the European Commission with uh, his Spanish counterpart, Pedro Sanchez. And in that letter, they called for a, an urgent review of the main contract between the European Union and Israel, which is called the Association Agreement. First of all, it's interesting that Leo Varadkar is using the word urgent, because he has used the word urgent before in relation to Israel. In 2013, Leo Varadkar was actually Ireland's transport minister. And at that time, he argued that an, an aviation agreement between um, Ireland and Israel should come into effect as, quote unquote, a matter of urgency. So at that time, he felt that it was actually urgent to embrace Israel more than Ireland had done, to, that it was urgent to increase trade uh, relations with, with and economic relations with Israel. He seems to have, he seems to be taking a slightly different approach now, so that is welcome. However, is that, is this really enough? In my opinion, it's not. The disagreement that I mentioned, uh, the association agreement between the European Union and Israel came into effect in the year 2000, so that's 24 years ago now. Article 2 of that agreement says that the relations between the European Union and Israel are conditional on respect for human rights. Every single day since that agreement has come into effect, Israel has denied basic rights to the Palestinian people. Not only has the European Union refused to sanction Israel, it has actually hugged Israel tighter over those 24 years. Now, Leo Varadkar is only asking for an urgent review at this point. He has not specified what, what should happen if Israel is found to be in breach of that agreement. And in any way, in any, in any event, um, Leo Varadkar should be politically astute enough to know a little bit about the dynamics in Brussels. He's been here many times. Um, the, in all likelihood, it's, it, the countries such countries in the European Union, such as Hungary, such as Poland, such as Germany, such as the Czech Republic, will block any sanctions against Israel. They've always done so. They did so very, very recently when an effort was made to have sanctions introduced against only four extreme, so-called extreme settlers, Israeli settlers, um, 
that was blocked by Poland. That, that initiative was blocked by Poland and Hungary, if memory serves me correct. Um, so the likelihood that the European Union is going to sanction Israel is extremely, extremely small at this point. So what, what Ireland really needs to do, it can do this, and perhaps it can do this uh, together with Spain, is to take steps on its own against Israel to introduce trade sanctions against Israel. The, the record, unfortunately, of Leo Varadkar and his party called Fine Gael is terrible in this. They've actually, one of the most anti-democratic things that Leo Varadkar and his party have ever done, and this is talking about all, 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 in all policy areas, not, not just with regards to, to Palestine, um, is a few years ago, the Irish parliament, the Oireachtas, both houses in the Oireachtas voted by a significant majority to ban goods from Israel's settlements. Even though that was approved by both houses in the Oireachtas, it was actually vetoed by Leo Varadkar and his party that in, a, in, a, in an extremely anti-democratic way. So what I would call, if Leo Varadkar or anybody else from his party are listening tonight, what I would say to them is stop blocking that initiative, ban. Your, be, that, that legislation has already been approved by both houses in, your par, in, in the Irish Parliament. You can take measures tomorrow to ban goods from Israel's settlements. And there are other things you can do, perhaps in consultation with like-minded countries like uh, Spain and Belgium, which seem to be saying similar things to Ireland. We know, we know that the European Union is not going to introduce sanctions against Israel anytime soon. We know that the European Union has supported this genocide in Gaza. Um, and the, the, lady, the lady to whom that letter uh, was addressed, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, has said that she fully supports Israel's war against Gaza. We know there's, there's, no, she, there's no point in putting any hope in her. It's necessary for Ireland and perhaps to take action on its own, perhaps in consultation with, in, in tandem with, with, with Spain and perhaps in partnership with, with, with countries, with other countries like Belgium. Yeah, um, Farah, I've got a, a question for you about uh, the Palestinian Authority. I mean, I found it really interesting at the beginning of that clip how you made a point of criticizing uh, and brave, actually, how you made the point of criticizing the Palestinian Authority's Irish representative who was speaking on stage that night, uh, Jalan Abdul-Majid. And could you talk about the PA's role in all this? Because um, I, also, I, I didn't know that what you mentioned earlier about um, one of Sinn Féin's leaders uh, going to speak to Hossam Zamlot, the PA's representative in London. And... Um, you know, Hassan Zabla is, is, is very embedded in the, it has to be said, he's very embedded in the Palestine Solidarity Movement in Britain. Um, and, it, you know, it, to me, in my view, this is a real problem that the British Palestine Solidarity Movement has. Is It has this, I mean, the best thing you could say about it is, is it's a kind of rose-tinted view of the Palestinian Authority, that it's, oh, well, it's, you know, it's not perfect, but it's Palestinian at the end of the day. Um, but you made the point of saying, look, they're, they're not, <laughs> you know, they're, really, the Palestinian Authority is part of the Israeli occupation, that that is its role. 
And, and we do get, just Asa, if I can add to the question, and we do get, I get this sometimes because, uh, you know, I, I, I won't say criticize, I say I describe the Palestinian Authority's role. And yeah. sometimes I'll get, I'll get uh, people saying to me, oh, you know, you shouldn't focus on this now. It's divisive. We should all be having a united front. So I hear that. And I, I, I'd love to know what Farah thinks of your question, Asa. Yeah, so um, we decided to address first and foremost um, the, the ambassador being with your mouthpiece, the Palestinian Authority, because the Palestinian Authority, you know, like I said in the clip, you know, haven't had an election since 2006. Um, they're brazenly corrupt. Um, they they embezzle public funds. They, um, you know, they are subcon they're subcontractors of the of the illegal um, Israeli occupation, and um, they work hand in hand with with Israel. When we talk about the Palestinian Authority and Israel, they're two sides of the same coin. Um, and even just a few weeks ago, um, we saw um, Israeli soldiers disguised as Palestinians invading a hospital in Janine, um and, uh, and opening uh, and murdering Palestinian victims, Palestinian patients, um, whilst in hospital beds. And th this is, you know, results of um, PA and Israeli security coordination. Um, and bringing uh, any PA mouthpiece to an sorry, event... Just, can I might... just add in, sorry, Farah, can I just uh, butt into just uh, point out that what you're saying there is is completely true because it is in people don't real a lot of people maybe in the west don't realize this it is in the job description of the palestinian authority um police security forces undercover officers all of their armed forces have to coordinate with the israeli occupation forces when the israeli occupation forces enters an area like janine like a refugee camp like ramallah they have to withdraw and coordinate with the Israeli occupation forces. That is part of their job role ever since they were founded. No, 100%. Um, and uh, for Sinn Féin to give a platform for uh, the Palestinian Authority, who you know are another arm of of Israel, um, they might as well invite you know Netanyahu or invite someone else uh, complicit in the genocide because the PA is equally as complicit. Um, the Palestinian Authority um, and and. To the answer what you said, um, the, what you had mentioned, uh, Ali, the, um, to keep, um, you know, one of the biggest responses from that video is from non-Palestinians telling me as a Palestinian, um, you should be unified right now. The PA aren't the focus. They're exactly the focus because they're equally complicit in this genocide. This genocide would not be happening on this scale without Palestinian Authority security coordination. Um, and uh, I felt it very, very important to, to mention because it often does get overlooked. Um, and they obviously work hand-in-hand in, hand in, in oppressing Palestinians. Well, we're going to leave it right there. Um, thank you so much, Farah Kutaini and uh, our colleague David Cronin. Farah, um, we hope you'll keep us up to date with all of your activism. I know that uh, you won't be stopping anytime soon, and thank you for that. Um, and uh, I encourage our viewers and listeners to follow Key48's work on Instagram. It's at Key, K-E-Y, 48, return. That's at Key48return on Instagram. Uh, Farah, where else can uh, our viewers and listeners find your work? I know you write for The New Arab as well. Um, it's mainly just on Key48return and, and The New Arab for now. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Farah. And David Cronin. Our wonderful, esteemed colleague, thank you for all the work that you constantly do. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that uh, 
that you finally made it on. We, we were able to lure you on to the EI live stream, so we'll have you back very soon. Thanks, Thank Farah you both. and David. Thank, Thank, you Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And this is the Electronic Intifada live stream for February 14th. Um, on February 9th, Columbia University hosted a high-profile event headlined by Hillary Clinton entitled, quote, Preventing and Addressing Conflict-Related Sexual Violence. One of the speakers was Jeffrey Gettleman, the lead author of a major New York Times story published in December purporting to corroborate Israel's discredited claims of mass rape on October 7th. Uh, Ali, you watched the entire event. I'm so sorry you had to do that. Uh, talk to us about what happened. What was that event? Yeah, well, right from the start, there were protests. So why don't we just start by taking a look at this clip of Karen Yahimilo introducing the event, and we'll take it from there. Far too often, rape and other forms of gender-based violence are used as a weapon of war and as a tactic of terrorism in conflicts all around the world. And I am going to ask you to please sit down I am going to ask you to please sit down because you are interrupting and you're interrupting an you are interrupting an, an event that is a public procession. I will now ask the if you can please sit down. If you can please sit down and we can have this discussion. And now you are not discussing the delegates will now based on university regulations will have Okay. Wow. Yeah. So that that was uh, Karen Yarhimilo, and she is the dean of Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, which co-sponsored this event along with the Georgetown University Institute for Women and Women, Peace, and Security. By the way, just to give you a sense of what an objective, uh, academic, and safe environment this is. Yarhi Milo was actually a former Israeli military intelligence officer before becoming the dean of SIPA at Columbia. And it's important to note that despite uh, her constant claims that this was an academic proceeding, there was actually no genuine public or student participation in what I would call a propaganda event. For example, there was no opportunity to ask questions or challenge speakers from the floor, and they even turned comments off on the YouTube live stream. So they really wanted to control the message, but the students showed real courage in speaking up um, and protesting and really preventing them from using this uh, event as a platform for propaganda. All right. And uh, Hillary Clinton, who was the star attraction for this event, uh, also received a similar welcome from the students in the audience. Yeah, let's, let's take a look at some of that. Thank you very much. That's my name. That's right. The people of Libya, the people of Iraq. The people of Syria, the people of Yemen, the people of Palestine, I'm asking you to leave. The delegates will now escort you out of the building. Thank you. Uh, can you, sir? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. 
Free. Starbucks. Free Palestine. I got this right. Oh, yeah, I don't Free. Sorry. Free Palestine. Free. Free Palestine. Free. Free Palestine. Free. Okay. Wow. Yeah, you know, uh, Hillary must really have had many years of practicing that fixed smile, yeah. which can smug, feel very so much. Smug. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we could also see what all this looked like from uh, all, the audience members uh, as well, and from particularly from members of the student activist group, Columbia University Apartheid Divest, who organized the protests and stood up one after the other and challenged Hillary on her hypocrisy and on how she has repeatedly weaponized claims of sexual violence to push American uh, foreign policy objectives. So here's one video that was uh, shot by an audience member. This is a violation of the university and you can This is an academic proceeding and you need to enter into it. Thank you very much. What are you doing? Thank you very much. Everyone, please join me and walk out of this event. And then, uh, and then we have one more that I want to show you from the from uh, these protests from the audience. Yeah. Ashamed? Are you not ashamed? You're exploiting okay. sexual violence right. we're gonna, for your own we're political game. You're not fooling I'm anyone. Gonna, You've done this before. Yeah. You've exploited and weaponized yeah. sexual violence in Libya, in Libya, to exploit sexual violence in Libya so that you can justify U.S. militarization and instability in Libya. You're doing that again to justify genocide in Russia. You're doing that to justify genocide in Russia. If you were truly enraged about sexual violence, you would be talking about the sexual violence in Palestine, the sexual violence that they endure by the IUS daily. Yeah, yeah, and, and you can, you can hear at the end of that clip the young woman calling out to Hillary, "You're no feminist. You're a white supremacist." And then just one last clip from the protest. I I love watching these so much. So indulge me. This is Linda Thomas Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. 
She's cast vetoes on behalf of the Joe Biden administration, blocking calls for an immediate ceasefire in Israel's uh, genocide on Gaza. And she was uh, repeated, uh, interrupted repeatedly. And at one point, the event actually had to be suspended. So here's just a little clip of that. Over the border from Sudan. And I heard from so many people who have said to me... This is yet again a violation of the university rules of conduct. You are interrupting an academic proceeding. It is time for you to exit the space. This is a violation of the university rules of conduct. This is an academic proceeding, and you need to exit the space. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, those those students are are very brave, and and just the the cravenness of of the you know of this like vaunted Ivy League. Oh no, academic decorum. Um, when they're hosting war criminals and and supporters of this genocide, uh, Ali, what impact did these protests have on the event? Well, according to Columbia University Apartheid Divest, the, the student activist group, nearly 100 students took part in the protest and then staged a mass walkout. We didn't necessarily show those clips in the order that happened, but when the walkout happened, very few people were actually left in the room for the rest of the event. And there were only a few dozen people watching online at the most. So from a propaganda standpoint for Israel, it was really kind of a flop. Yeah, I know. I I think uh, the 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 four of us at EI who were watching at the same time was about you know like a tenth of the entire yeah. audience. Um, have there been any repercussions for the students? Because uh, you know, as we know, as I've covered over the last twenty years, um, when students speak truth to power in universities, uh, they get uh, sanctioned or punished somehow. But w- what do you know about what's happened to them? Yeah, well, following the walkout, according to the student activists, campus security attempted to illegally detain students, withholding their property, including medical devices. That's from Columbia University Apartheid Divest. The group said that one student, uh, who prefers to remain anonymous due to fear of retaliation, described how security knowingly withheld her doctor-prescribed inhaler as leverage to solicit information for potential disciplinary hearings. And that all really speaks to the climate of fear at Columbia University for Palestinian students and faculty and their supporters. Many say that uh, President Minush Shafiq has bent over backwards to appease relentless Israel lobby attacks, falsely claiming that the campus is rife with anti-Semitism. And the Israel lobby has been waging campaigns against students at professor and professors at Columbia University for years. Last month, for example, students holding a rally to protest the Israeli genocide in Gaza were attacked with a noxious chemical spray, allegedly by supporters of Israel, and this is being investigated by police. And just this week, the Education Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives sent a letter to Columbia University demanding documents for a literal McCarthyite witch hunt by members of Congress 
against the university, alleging that it is, quote, failing to protect Jewish students uh, from supposed anti-Semitism. The letter is full of smears and outlandish allegations against Columbia faculty. One of the many false examples of anti-Semitism cited in the letter is an article by Columbia professor uh, Joseph Mashad that he wrote for the Electronic Intifada about the events of October 7th. And Professor Mashad has been a particular target of these libelous smears by the Israel lobby now for uh, more than two decades. So it really does take courage to speak up and protest in this way at such a repressive university like Columbia, especially against someone as powerful and ruthless as Hillary Clinton who has actually been rewarded by the university for her war crimes with a professorship there. So really hats off to these students. Yeah, indeed. Um, well, let's turn to some of what was said at the conference. Um, Jeffrey Gettleman of the New York Times was there. Of course, he's the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, reporter who put together that big so-called uh, deep investigation alleging mass rapes by Hamas fighters on October 7th uh, without a shred of evidence, of course. Yeah, uh, he was the lead reporter on that fraudulent article. And viewers may remember that we debunked it here on this live stream back on uh, January 3rd. And we showed in detail how Gettleman relied on completely unreliable and inconsistent so-called eyewitnesses as well as on the Israeli military and on Zaka, a Jewish extremist group that has repeatedly fabricated October 7th atrocity stories that have since been completely debunked, even in the Israeli press. So you will also recall that the family of Gal Abdush, an Israeli woman who Gettleman claimed was raped, repudiated his story. They actually said there was no evidence Gal Abdush had been raped, and they accused the New York Times of misleading and manipulating them, and that they had no idea that Gettleman was actually going to claim that Gal Abdush was raped. And then, as we reported on our live stream on January 31st, Gettleman's own colleagues at the New York Times have also spoken up against what they see as potentially another major journalistic fraud and scandal for their newspaper. That prompted the Times to scrap an episode of its flag flagship podcast, The Daily, which was going to be based on Gettleman's now discredited reporting. Was Gettleman challenged uh, and held accountable for all of this at the conference? No, not at all. Uh, mm -hmm. He was actually treated as a conquering hero in a fawning interview by Sheryl Sandberg, the former Facebook executive and the staunch Zionist herself. Sandberg revealed during the session that she has just returned from Tel Aviv, where she is filming a documentary about the alleged mass rapes. She's making the documentary with an Israeli company called Castina Communications. And the title of the film is Screams Before Silence, which is very similar to the headline of Gettleman's own fraudulent New York Times piece, Screams Without Words. Shameful. Um, did... Did Gettleman address any of the problems with his reporting at all? Not directly, but it was very clear to me that he knew he was being closely watched and listened to. So what he did was try to surreptitiously back away from some of his more categorical claims. Let's listen to... 
I, I stepped into Israel and I did some stories about hostages and pretty soon, I mean maybe, I don't know, within the first few days of, of this attack, we were hearing reports of rape and mutilations of, of women. We heard it right away. And I don't, I, maybe people in this room remember those videos of the female soldiers being taken away and the body of that, that one woman, Shawnee Locke, in the back of a pickup truck, half naked. Right away, it just, it just there was obviously crimes against women uh, that happened. So because, uh, sadly, I have some experience doing this, I began looking to see what we could find out. And I worked with two other colleagues, and we interviewed almost 200 people over the course of two months. And what we found, I don't want to even use the word evidence, because evidence is almost like a legal term that suggests you're trying to, to prove an allegation or prove a case in court. That's, that's not my role. Right. Um, we all have our roles, and, and my role is to, is to document, is to present information, is to give people a voice. And we found information along the entire chain of violence, so of, of sexual violence. So his role as an award-winning reporter is not to report evidence. His role is simply to relay information, is what he's admitting to. Yeah, uh, incredible. I, I've never heard a journalist say something like this. <laughs> In my understanding, and I, I, I never, never had any ambition to be a journalist. It just was something that needed, to, needed to be done. Uh, <laughs> I understand that the job of a real journalist is to look at evidence and to look mm -hmm. for evidence and to evaluate its credibility. And, and what you do is, uh, you say, you know, we looked at this and this is why we think this is credible and this is why we think it's not credible. That's the responsibility you have to your readers and, and viewers. And that's what we try to do at the Electronic Intifada, but that's apparently not what you do at the, the New York Times. But look at how he's trying to absolve himself of that responsibility and suggest that all he needs to do is just regurgitate whatever so-called information is handed to him. And if it turns out to be false, well, that's, uh, that's not his fault. And it's also interesting... In that little clip, uh, and I believe in the rest of the, 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 the event, he never mentions Gal Abdush, who again was the central uh, victim or, or uh, presented as the central victim in his story. So it seems that he's no longer willing to publicly stand by that discredited story, but nor is he willing to actually take responsibility for his misreporting. But... This is also his claim now that, oh, I don't look for evidence. I just, uh, you know, I just pass on information. Whatever comes in front of me, I pass it on, is not actually the approach he took in his December article. Remember that headline, Screams Without Words, How Hamas Weaponized Sexual Violence on October 7th. That is very specific and very definitive. And look at the subheading. I, and I quote, a Times investigation uncovered new details showing a pattern of rape, mutilation, and extreme brutality against women in the attacks on Israel, end quote. This is all presented as incontrovertible facts. It doesn't leave any room for doubt. And Gettleman's article uses the word evidence 
no fewer than 10 times and repeatedly claims that there's lots of it. Now he's changed his story. Of course, we know Gettleman and the New York Times would never take this laid-back approach with anything Palestinians say. There, everything needs to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, and even then, they still won't believe Palestinians. To me, it's absolutely despicable that all this was presented to an audience with no challenge, and Sheryl Sandberg did not ask Gettleman about any of the problems that have been identified with his article by outlets, including the Electronic Intifada, Mondo Weiss, The Gray Zone, and The Intercept. Yeah, I mean, the entire event was just a self-congratulatory, you know, press conference, basically, um, for Israel. What do you think Gettleman's goal is right now? In my opinion, Gettleman knows he's committed a massive fraud and is trying to cover it up and save his reputation. I think he's motivated not by a mission to uncover the truth, uh, but... Uh, really just to spread atrocity propaganda on behalf of Israel. Uh, He is not, in my opinion, a journalist, but an information warrior in Israel's genocidal war. Ali, what can we take away from this? Well, in a sense, the event at Columbia was really a microcosm of the world we live in. It brought together representatives of the world's most powerful and corrupt forces, You have at the beginning there Karen Yarhi Milho, the former Israeli intelligence officer, controlling the event, policing everyone's speech, and ordering audience members to be thrown out. She represents the real role of elite universities in the West, which is not, as they claim, free and open academic inquiry, but rather gatekeeping and providing a veneer of academic credibility to the narratives and interests of the powerful. Then you have Hillary Clinton and Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, along with a number of other former government officials who are there, representing the U.S. imperial war machine and its completely unaccountable and immune ruling class. You have, as I mentioned, Sheryl Sandberg representing Silicon Valley and big capital and their cozy symbiotic relationship with government in order to censor and control what we can see and say. And then you have Jeffrey Gettleman representing the New York Times and the rest of the establishment media that serve as faithful stenographers for the propaganda narratives and the, and the powerful. And all these forces are scratching each other's backs, supporting each other's agendas, and helping cover up for one another. And finally, you have the students who I think represent us, the public, who are given absolutely no voice and no way to really challenge the powerful except through protest, literally shouting from the back of the room to stop an American armed genocide supported by everyone on, on, up on the stage. But in this case, those courageous protesters did an incredible job exposing this for the sham that it was, and for a few minutes at least, confronting Hillary Clinton and her, uh, with her heinous crimes in Iraq, Libya, Syria, and Palestine, something the New York Times and the rest of the semi-official media will never, ever do. Thank you so much, Ali, for that breakdown. Um, And, uh, yeah, just uh, that, yeah, journalists um, patting themselves on the back for not providing any evidence. For committing fraud, patting themselves on the back for committing fraud, yeah. Incredible. Um, Thanks so much, Ali. 
And uh, we are now going to turn to our uh, resistance roundup with our good buddy, John Elmer. Hey, John. How's it going? Hi, guys. Hey, Hi. John. Good to see uh, everybody in terrible times. Yeah. See everyone. Awful times. Um, and, uh, but yet the, the resistance is, uh, is, uh, still making, making gains and, um, facing the enemy with dignity and honor. What can you tell us about, uh, what's, what's happened the last week? Well, the Israelis, um, are wrapping up their operation in Khan Yunis. Um, I don't know if we have the map that we can throw up, uh, Tamara for this, but, um, yeah, just so we can see in the south there uh, in Khan Yunis, that's where uh, the Israeli operation uh, of the last, really last six weeks, they've been fighting uh, in Khan Yunis. Um, the Israelis have said that they've wrapped up that operation and um, like they say everywhere else, that they dismantled and destroyed the Qassam brigades, which there's no evidence of uh, whatsoever. But the Israelis are drawing down their forces as if that's the case. They've drawn down their forces now in Gaza by 70% um, to what it was in early January. So the nature of the fighting has changed. The nature of the targeting um, has changed because of that. Um, and so we'll see in these videos uh, this week um, a, a few different tactics, some much that we've seen before. Um, but uh, let's start... Um, well, we can just look at that map that we, we're, we're going to cover the territory while we have this map up. Um, you can see Gaza City there in the north. Um, Israel reinvaded um, Gaza City in the last uh, few weeks, um, going back into Gaza City and, as we know, um, re-besieging Shifa Hospital um, and carrying out more operations um, along the shoreline, along the promenade in the downtown area of Gaza City that we can see there on the map. Um, and of course, what we're, what's apparently we're on the precipice of is a major operation in Rafah, the last place um, that Israel hasn't destroyed entirely um, because it's where they told the million, the two million Palestinians um, two-plus million Palestinians in the Gaza Strip to go. Um, and so people are living in tents in Rafah by the hundreds of thousands. Um, UNICEF said the other day that there was at least 600,000 children um, in Rafah alone. Um, so we're facing a crisis, um, a humanitarian disaster uh, looming over this operation in Rafah, which is what uh, the U.S. has tried to, uh, according to the State Department um, and the White House, uh, Biden called it the other day, our operation in Rafah, which was at least um, somewhat honest. Um, but in the failings, apparently, of the ceasefire talks that we talked about last week, um, Israel said that uh, those, and Joe Biden as well, said that the um, Qassam demands were over the top it's not clear which of their humanitarian asks um, Israel think is, thinks is over the top um, because they were very basic um, things that were asked for um, in the ceasefire agreement to move aid throughout the territory, um, to allow uh, civil defense uh, crews to work in the north to um, bear, un, undo people that are buried in the rubble, thousands of people. Um, more than 10,000 perhaps stuck under the rubble um, of their family homes throughout the Gaza Strip. Um, and so part of the ceasefire negotiations 
um, the details that were in those negotiations were to deal with the humanitarian catastrophe. Um, they were to deal with the rest of the prisoner exchange that Israel didn't carry out um, in the first round of prisoner exchange pause, which is to exchange the civilians um, and to uh, open aid up to the Gaza Strip. And um, the Biden administration called that over the top. Um, so the pause agreement has apparently been put on the back burner. And now we're talking about um, an invasion of Rafah where uh, more than a million, a million and a half Palestinians are living in tents. And it's also Rafah is the main aid distribution site. So the aid that's being, the little aid that there is in Gaza, the food aid that's being distributed is being distributed through a network that exists in Rafah that doesn't exist elsewhere in the rest of the Gaza Strip. So we're on the precipice of a major humanitarian catastrophe, which 131 days into this feels very difficult to say that somehow this situation is getting worse. Um, but for the Palestinians in Gaza, um, it looks that way right now. Um, Netanyahu said that without attacking Rafah, that we lose the war. Um, and so we saw him down and we saw Israeli generals down um, on the border with Gaza talking to troops about how they are planning on going in and how this will be Israel touching all areas of the Gaza Strip, which is, of course, uh, what they mean is destroying it. We saw with satellite maps last week um, destruction in some areas that's virtually total in the north, especially. Um, and there has been bombing of Rafah throughout this war, even though Israel said it was the safe area. Rafah has been the target and there's been many strikes in Rafah. And of, over the last number of days, um, it's been a catastrophe in Rafah because of the population density and Israel's attacks. Um, which they always begin with the airstrikes before they send their ground troops in. And the airstrikes are by far the most deadly part uh, of these operations. And so um, really looking, staring down the barrel of another um, catastrophe. Um, and again, with very little uh, military achievements, objectives uh, reached here by Israel um, carrying out these operations. Um, so again, a 70% drawdown in Israeli forces has changed considerably um, the way that the resistance looks. But let's start with number one, Tamara. This is um, Sarai al-Quds. This is the armed wing of Islamic Jihad. And we're watching here um, fighters in a unit moving through the walls um, in their neighborhood, moving out um, to attack a D9 armored bulldozer. Um, which they've been attacking um, considerably of late, um, a possible switch in tactics from early on in the war when we saw them actually passing on the bulldozers in order to hit um, the troop carriers and tanks. Now it's possible that they believe that um, that the, the bulldozers are actually something that are in shorter supply than their armored vehicles. Um, so it's again, most of these things we're going to have to talk to the fighters after the war ends to find out what these things are. We're trying to interpret them in real time. But um, what we're seeing in these vid in this first video of Sorrel Kuds fighting in Khan Yunus um, is the fighters moving um, purposefully through the city, clearly knowing exactly where they're going. They're natives to this town um, and they're using that knowledge to stalk. Uh, Israeli bulldozers. So this is this we're seeing three sets of fighters attacking the same bulldozer here from from various different angles um, and moving through alleys, moving through the buildings, 
um, in order to stay away from the Israeli drone activity, which is a constant for the Israeli military. And we'll watch here with audio here the second time through. We watch them go through these mouse holes in the wall, moving between buildings. Um, and you can hear here now uh, the drone sound of the drone. fighters are moving around. They're under surveillance constantly by drones, which are then sending information um, to uh, Israeli ground forces that are targeting or to air force uh, strikes. Uh, the Israelis are not going in and fighting face to face. We've seen that now uh, for 130 days. They don't get out of their vehicles uh, virtually at all. Um, and so we're watching them walk through walls to avoid drone fire. Um, to, a drone, to drone fire and drone surveillance. Um, and we can see in these Sarai Al-Quds videos, because they stay with the shot a little bit longer, um, we can watch the unit move purposely and carefully uh, through the town, which is something that um, the, 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 they've essentially mapped these towns. Um, Khan Yunus, in this case, we're watching right now in Western Khan Yunus, where there was a lot of fierce fighting that we showed, uh, particularly last week on the show. And there you can see the bulldozer is hit, um, multiple times on that one. Um, and we know that the Americans are flying drones, uh, over this area too. We know that they've been flying, um, MQ-9 Reaper drones, um, over the Gaza Strip as part of the, uh, as part of the operation, they say, because, uh, there's Americans involved in the, uh, capture in the captives, um, that that gives them the, uh, the ability to, uh, have flyovers of Palestinian territory by American drones. So maybe we can go to the second one tomorrow. This is, um, again, another example walking through walls. Um, the fighters are moving through, uh, mouse holes in the walls. We're seeing mouse holes both in moving in through in individual houses, moving from house to house. Um, we're seeing them in alleyways, so moving from uh, area of the city to other area of the city. And here we see, again, um, soldiers in a window. The Israelis are still in the windows. Um, they believe that they're the ones watching. But, of course, the Palestinian reconnaissance is superior. It's both their own neighborhood, and they're watching constantly. They don't uh, have the drone and the, the technology that the Israelis do. Um, they're using... Um, their eyesight and their knowledge of the neighborhood. So now we have Israelis that believe they're safe in a building. Welcome back. And uh, that was the Electronic Intifada <clears throat> discussing the uh, current situation in Palestine, the uh, repressive uh, tactics uh, utilized uh, by elite universities in the United States to support the state of Israel, among other issues. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today. And, of course, uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's the blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and that's at uh, Pan African News. .blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, <clears throat> that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Friday, 
uh, February the 16th, uh, 2024. We've been broadcasting from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, we're going to conclude our program uh, with the music of John Coltrane. And, of course, uh, John Coltrane at one time uh, was considered one of the most innovative and progressive uh, forces in the world of music. So let's listen uh, to uh, John Coltrane from the album entitled Expressions. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Thank you.